It amazes me how much sway the Bible still has in modern social interactions. I get that it's a revered text for Christians, a scripture that helps them view themselves and others in the world. But it's also like that uncouth uncle from another time, who talks about folks using politically incorrect, dated, and offensive terms. I frequently tell my students that if the Bible were any other cultural icon, it'd come with a warning sticker saying that the words in this text do not necessarily represent the views of today's purveyors. Warner Brothers feels the need to do this on old minstrel Looney Tunes cartoons, but I've yet to see Christians so compelled. If anything, the Bible elicits a fight-or-flight response. There are Christians who will defend it with the strongest sentiment, and there are Christians who will trip trying to distance themselves from it. If the Bible is going to play such a prismatic role in people's lives, then it's high time that people rethink what this ancient text is doing in our contemporary pluralistic world. Dr. Jennifer Grace Byrd is a biblical scholar with advanced degrees from Princeton Theological Seminary and Vanderbilt University, and she shares her thoughts on how this might be done. Absolutely, my politics inform my exegesis, but you know, part of my politics in this particular conversation is let's be honest about what's there so that we can have a better informed conversation, so that we can say, guess what folks, there are passages that, that really are really harmful for women, and I don't need to perpetuate that I want to do the exact opposite but that means that I need to be so that means I need to be honest about what I see on the pages in order to be able to call it out and that's coming up right now from sowingtheseed.org this is broadcast seeding a podcast with future food for thought religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you joined us. Our guest is Dr. Jennifer Grace Bird. She's a biblical scholar and an avid writer on the Bible and the Bible in public life. Dr. Bird is the author of the acclaimed book, Permission Granted, Take the Bible into Your Own Hands. So Jennifer Bird, welcome to Broadcast Seating. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Richard. So Permission Granted is a fantastic title for this particular book, I think. And can you tell us who are the gatekeepers you have in mind when you wrote this book? So who is it that would keep us from reading the book otherwise, the Bible, that is? Oh, okay. The gatekeepers. Yeah. <laughs> this is a question I've not had someone ask me, actually. That's how we do it, you know. <laughs> I like it. You know, I, I don't. It doesn't. I don't want it to sound rude, but part of it is actually your pastors, your Sunday school teachers, who all meant well, but they they were trying to uphold what they'd been told <laughs> or how they'd been taught, and so they don't want you asking questions. I can't tell you how many students I've had over the years say, "I was actually told to stop asking questions about the you know about about the Bible," and just was silenced. So that's in a sense, those are the gatekeepers. I'm giving you permission to ignore what they say. It seems to me that there are certain questions that in a particular community may be sort of off the table, right? To some level, yes, asking questions about a sacred text is especially encouraged. But then if you ask certain questions, it's like, no, too much, go (laughs) back, right? I can't handle that, yeah. So talk to us about what the Bible looks like when it's in your hands. How did you approach the Bible when you were writing this book and thinking about what it could be? So I come from um, a faith tradition. So I grew up in the Methodist Church, and I had my own kind of swing to the right, if you will, very evangelical, kind of fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. And I'm not there anymore, obviously. Um, 
but so I understand kind of a lot of places on the faith spectrum, if you will. So having had um, a decent stint in a very conservative realm, I understand why and how the Bible functions as this very sacred thing, almost equal to God itself. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to try to honor that way of seeing the Bible because I, I think of that segment of our of the population as being the ones who need most kind of a more informed view of what the Bible is. So how I kind of held or viewed the Bible in, in writing this book is trying to honor how people hold it and I guess try to have a conversation with someone about what's that's really going on in there. Yeah. Huh. Did I answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Because as I was reading the book, one thing that kept coming to mind was just the amount of empathy that comes yeah. across, right? So you you don't just demonize one group or another group, but you say, okay, there are some people who believe this about the Bible. There's some people yeah. who believe that about the Bible. Here's what I think, or here at least is the question that I want us to entertain for a moment. Yeah. And um, a lot of books out there, a lot, there are a lot of books in the New Testament, frankly, or on the Bible in general. Um, empathy is not a term that seems to come up, perhaps, in many of them. So, so what does it mean for you to sort of think about yourself as an empathetic writer or an empathetic exegete? Like, what brought you to that kind of position when writing about the Bible? I like to quote, and I, it's actually in the book, the, at the beginning of the semester, I discuss with, with students, and so this is a big component of, in a sense, my teaching philosophy, is understanding, you know, the quote attributed to Aristotle, that it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. And I genuinely think that that is the way to go about life. Like, it's not just about education, it's about relationships. That's your boss who's driving you crazy or your coworker who you, you know, understanding where they're coming from, what they're, you know, so in the case of the Bible, um, or p people, understanding <coughs> What it is for them is where you need to start, because you can't have a conversation with someone if you're, you know, if you do not understand what's at stake for them. You can't have a conversation; it just won't go very well. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, I love that you that you called it empathy because I think um, they're human. We're all human, and I I think of all these really intelligent people who just haven't had a chance to sit with these thoughts for themselves, you know, and and so I, I think it becomes a much more productive conversation if you can start with, um, it makes you more human, it makes you, or brings the, the human part of you to the conversation to say, yeah, um, I might really just, you know, see this story in Genesis as a ridiculous story, because obviously snakes don't talk, right, in the garden, but here are the, the reasons why it's really hard for someone else to hear that it's just a story. And then you can have a conversation, try to start to have a conversation with someone about seeing it differently. And is there a certain hermeneutic or way of interpreting the text that you used when writing this particular book? Um, I'm just trying to think, is there a certain hermeneutic or maybe an approach that you were like, I am not using that one. Like, I know you went to seminary and all these different schools. I mean, really great schools, by the way. And they tell you, okay, you can interpret the Bible this way and that way. Were there any that you said, okay, I think this this can help me, or this way, absolutely not. This is not going to work for this this project. Well, I, without even thinking about it, I think at this point, I, I employ a feminist critical hermeneutic. Um, and... 
you know, I don't name it that way in the book. Sure. Because, yeah, great. <laughs> as, you, as you acknowledge, it's, that just kind of would be in counterproductive in a sense. But I do, I think, I, I mean, I employ that in everything I do, right? mm-hmm. the feminist angle. Um, and I think, especially for this book, that was kind of the primary one. Um, it's, it's a hard enough one to get people to even consider. Well, I was just thinking that if you put feminist critical reading of the Bible, that's a good way for your book not to sell, exactly. right? Um, no matter what you think about feminism or criticism, for whatever reason, a publisher is probably going to steer you clear of that and say, no, don't do that. But I think given what you've laid out, it's probably your, your approach is like, hey, it's not that scary or it's not all the bad things you think it means. So what does that mean for you that you're using this feminist critical approach that it kind of pervades what you've been doing on a very basic level i think it just means you know take a certain story you know we you know so many of us have been growing up in a, in a church tradition um we're trained to identify with the the protagonists mm-hmm. who are male mm-hmm. <laughs> and did you stop to ask how was that um almost sacrifice of isaac how did that go over with sarah you know so that that opens a great conversation for folks if they've never thought about that before. So just simply raising the questions about what's happening for women. How does this story as told play out? What does that lead to for women? What kind of um, a view of women does that create? And not just in the story, but in our communities today. And giving voice to, you know, um, aside to the stories and to our own humanity. Right? Yeah. Not, and you give a voice to that humanity, and you also invest yourself in the text, like all good authors do, and yet you leave the reader with a lot of questions. And they're not forced questions, but they're questions that are out there like, hey, okay, I just dropped this here, now think about it for a while, and get back to me, right? It's just like, okay, then here's the next question. So what kind of prep work goes into that approach to writing, whether it's the laying out of the question or just thinking about what do you want to say that's significant about the Bible? So what did the, the research or the sort of self-preparation look like for you? I think the honest response to that question is that it came out of my own life experience in going to seminary and learning about these things for myself the first time. And it was ridiculously world-shattering and shaking and unsettling and disturbing and took quite a while for me personally to pull it all back together mm-hmm. uh, in a way that made sense for me. And then, then, in a sense, just doing that for lots of students over and over again. And what are the questions that when they say, this becomes a slippery slope, you know, where does it stop? Like, those questions of, if we entertain this idea, where does that lead us? Where does that take us? That's actually right where you need to be, in a sense. They're realizing there's something scary or different, potentially, for them in entertaining this idea. So let's just, let's massage that. Let's talk about that, right? Let's make that space or that place that connect, like, oh, they get the, the, the meaning of seeing this differently. Let's just sit with that for a while. Let that be okay. You're going to survive that question. Right. And I think a lot of books that are out there um, that I've checked out uh, at various booksellers or, you know, just in being in the guild, um, when they bring readers to that question about the slippery slope or those really kind of the crux of the matter, they supplement it with answers drawing upon ancient timelines and biblical languages and archaeological ruins and finds. 
you don't really do that so much in your book. I mean, there aren't a lot of footnotes, right? I mean, if anything, you reference pop culture, literature. I think Alanis Morissette's in there, Desperate Housewives. There's a comic strip. I mean, there's all these things that you draw on to help the reader think with when they're reading the Bible. And so why did you go maybe that route as opposed to let me, you know, unroll the scroll here. And if you parse this term here and all those paradigms from Greek and Hebrew that you know so well as a teacher, why did you flip to the sort of contemporary history? The reason for doing that was just as a way to show people that you're actually still encountering it on a regular basis in your culture, in our culture. And it's often not very well-informed use of those passages in, in the Bible, but it's what our collective consciousness or our cultural ideas are. So, huh, let's look at what, what that story actually is saying and doing, and what do you make of that? I think, you know, that's, in a sense, it's almost like that's a, an ongoing side project in, in terms of getting people to understand why having an informed view of the Bible is actually important. You encounter it all the time, whether you're aware of it or not. And yeah. so that, I think, is more, that, that's just kind of a fun way to get into the conversation of, why don't you go read it for yourself and think about it for yourself, you know? Yeah, and as that conversation continues, does this informed way rely upon having an ancient world understanding? Do you need to know, or does it not even matter? I mean, this is the 21st century. We take the text, we do whatever we need to do with it. I mean, do you need to go to the Holy Land and dig in order to really get it? How does the, if you will, the historical critical method that so many schools and so many books put forward, what role does that have in the informed way that you're sort of laying out for contemporary readers? Or does it? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. It does. It absolutely does. Okay. You know, I don't think you or I would be here <laughs> doing what we do without the historical critical method, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's, it is, I think, foundational. It just needs a lot of supplements. You know? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, and, and people have asked, what, you know, why I didn't have more references, why I didn't, you know, do that. And, and I think on some basic level, I'm trusting that what I'm out to do in this book is just to get people interested in understanding that it's much more complex than mm-hmm. what the simple takeaway that they usually think of. This was just an intro yeah. to thinking more complexly about the Bible. Well, it's interesting that you, when talking about the historical critical method, you sort of said, in our education, I would say for both of us, it was very fundamental, foundational. But at one level, too, it's like there are thousands of years of readers now who may not necessarily have employed that method to make sense of the text and live into it, to embody the text as a scripture, if you will. And yet they arrive at some of these complexities as well, right? These questions of like, why does this matter? How does this matter to me? And that's not to say that the historical critical method doesn't get there either, because I think it does for particular communities too. What if I just abandoned the historical critical method or left that to be the supplement and started with a feminist critical approach? What would that New Testament class look like? I mean, it could be just as easy that I use your book to be the textbook for my class as I could. I'll throw out a bunch of other names, but not competition, just names out there. Bart Ehrman's book, John Collins' book, uh, you know, name all the biblical studies textbooks out there. Why is historical critical the center and these other on the fringes? It could be the other way around. The reason why I actually do use one of the names you you mentioned um, in my intros is because time and time again, wow, gosh, that was really helpful to hear or to learn about oh, I didn't know that Christians were actually thought of as cannibals (laughs) because of this idea in John 6 to eat my body and drink my blood. Like, I didn't know they were actually thought of that way. Um, Some sort of historical context that pulls this, my students, I think think it in that context, out of their own their own headspace and their own world and to say oh my gosh there's there's more to this story there's more to what where this text came from it's not my world it's something different and so learning about that world 
yeah. as limited as it might be, is actually really helpful for people. Yeah, it gives that sense of perspective, the sort of fresh air, uh, making it new again, sort of. Different, new. yeah, more complex. So now that you've written this book and you've written a whole bunch of other things in the New Testament and the Bible in general, um, what sort of perspective do you have on the Bible or perhaps on its readers, like its contemporary readers? You write on Huffington Post, places like that. So what's your sense how the Bible's being used in contemporary life? <laughs> I get so frustrated <laughs> all the time. Um, yeah, I actually just wrote a, submitted a piece yesterday for Huffington Post. We'll see if they want to publish it. But, you know, just to, like, that's a good example. There was, one, I don't know if you get the emails, but Huffington Post Religion has, like, a daily update of the things they want to highlight, right? And the things they highlighted on Monday, one of them was a blogger who's, you know, a preacher, a teacher. I'm sure she's a lovely person, right? But her use of scripture, her understanding of scripture, just, like, had an aneurysm, you know? I was like, are you kidding me? Are you trying, I mean, she actually said in her blog piece that, you know, a real Christian marriage or relationship is about equality. I'm like, where? Where does it say that in scripture? Like, <laughs> no, you want that to be the case. And as everybody else on the planet who uses the Bible, so you will find a way to make that be the case. And you will talk about a passage in such a way that it endorses what you think as opposed to just being honest about what that passage is saying. I mean, she actually said in her piece that Ephesians 5 does not tell men to be the heads of marriages. I'm like, I, sorry, I'm turning that to the cuss because I like to draw no the problem. F-bomb, but like, no are problem. you kidding me? Like, yes, it does say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't say it directly, but it really implies it. It calls him the head of the body, just like right his head, you know. So this is what goes on in my head every time I hear someone <laughs> use a reference to the Bible to endorse what they believe in, and in a way that is really not well informed on what the Bible passage is actually saying. So do you read the comments of your blog posts? No. <laughs> okay. No, because that's just... That's a, probably a healthy way of approaching writing yeah. on the internet. I mean, if, if you agree with what I'm saying, that's great. I don't need the ego stroke, you know, yeah. to see that you agree with me. If you don't and you're not being polite about it, you know, you're not actually doing what I try to do, which is trying to understand what you, what you believe. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, the meme comments mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Just because I've pushed a button for someone and they're just reacting and defending. So, you know, it's not, that's not engaging. So that's not very fun. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who, who've commented, you know, pundits and the like, who've said uh, biblical literacy in the Western world is really at a low, an all-time low. Like, people don't read the Bible anymore. Kids don't know it anymore. Is, do you get that that's the sense? Or, like, how would you, yeah, address that question or that observation? Yeah, Because I mean, you're not short of business, right? I mean, you're writing all the time yes. about this stuff. So <laughs> apparently people are still doing things with the Bible. Otherwise, it's time to pack up. But No, that's a great point. And, but it's not very well-informed when, okay. you know, for those who are actually using it. And then I, you know, and then I encounter people who were not raised in any sort of um, Christian faith tradition, and so they don't even know what you're talking about when you reference Job or Jonah. Absolutely. And, right, you know, they don't know that Goliath is actually a story from the Bible, and you know, and, and that's okay. But there's there's an element of wow, there there are things happening around you that you're missing the context, you're missing the clues, you're missing the the point or the joke or the whatever. Mm-hmm. Or we could even go into all of the artistic expressions over the centuries that come right. that are based on biblical stories, but often not exactly representing what's in that story. And I find that interesting and worth commenting on. And you miss 
so much of the point of so much of the the culture in Europe, for instance, if right. you, you know, you go to a cathedral, go to any museum, and all the artwork, like you're missing a, a component of what's going on in that in that creation. When people say that there's a drop in literacy. Perhaps what they're really getting at is that in order to understand the, this cultural context, it's really would do you well to know the Bible, right? That it's sort of informed by, extends from the Bible. That's sort of the cultural heritage of the West, right? That right. the West right. grows out of this very biblically informed worldview. I think there's a, there are a couple books out that try to address that. Like, okay, just to be a well-informed person in the West, these are big biblical stories you should probably be familiar with. You know, yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of appreciate that. Kind of so... Thinking about readers and also yourself as a writer and also yourself as a reader too, right? I mean, you're, you're a professional reader of sorts uh, as much as you write. How much do your politics guide your exegesis and how much do you think your exegesis guides your politics? And uh, there's no value judgment associated with that, but it seems that those things are intimately tied for all readers and writers. And I wonder how, how that comes to the fore as you, you engage as both, you know, a reader of the Bible and a writer about the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't need the Bible to say anything in particular. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten to that place. It, it says what it says. And absolutely my politics inform my exegesis. But, but, but I should say that, you know, I become very, I become a champion of the passages that are about justice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, want to honor that in the midst of even when that word or message of justice is embedded in a whole bunch of other nasty, patriarchal, oppressive crap, right? So absolutely my politics inform my exegesis, but you know, part of my politics in this particular conversation is let's be honest about what's there so that we can have a better informed conversation, so that we can say, guess what folks, there are passages that, that really are really harmful for women. And I don't need to perpetuate that, I want to do the exact opposite. But that means that I need to be, so that means I need to be honest about what I see on the pages in order to be able to call it out. So the Bible isn't my resource of morals or ethics. Hmm. It, at times, can, can reinforce that idea. So it gives us um, a connection to people 3,000, 4,000 years ago who had some sort of inkling of that. And so I can draw on that and say, see, look, here's this message of justice and fighting oppression. But I don't, since I don't need the Bible to say anything in particular, I think that on some level makes it easier for me to engage it. Yeah. Respectfully. Yeah. It, it it reminds me a lot, what you said reminds me a lot of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the show The West Wing and Aaron Sorkin drama. One of the seasons, the episode's about um, the death penalty and sort of this whole conversation about whether it is just to, you know, have the death penalty or not. And there's a Jewish character and Christian characters, and there's this whole morality play going on throughout it. And at one point, the Jewish character is talking to his rabbi about this. And they're, they're, they're sort of discussing about, you know, is it right, according to the Torah, to have the death penalty? And the rabbi says something along the lines of, the Torah represents the sort of the best wisdom of the time, right? But there's a point where the most Jewish thing to do is to think about, well, is the Bible right, right? Is this moral? Is this just? Which I think there's a, a long tradition in Judaism of interpreting the Bible with that particular perspective of really thinking about values not necessarily being embedded in the text, but coming in through and out of the text even, enough to question the text itself, right? That's what it means to take an informed approach. The Torah doesn't prohibit capital punishment. No. It says an eye for an eye. You know what it also says? It says a rebellious child can be brought to the city gates and stoned to death. 
It says homosexuality is an abomination and punishable by death. It says men can be polygamous and slavery is acceptable. For all I know, that thinking reflected the best wisdom of its time. But it's just plain wrong by any modern standard. Society has a right to protect itself. But it doesn't have a right to be vengeful. It has a right to punish. But it doesn't have a right to kill. I think about that and some of the comments you made about how you read in the place of justice and ethics. Is there a picking and choosing that then necessarily goes on, right? Is, is there a sort of informed, sophisticated picking and choosing that you do to make the Bible work the way you need it to work or want it to work, I guess? Absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm just as uh, guilty of the cherry picking as anyone else. Um, and cherries are good. I mean, like, whatever. Yes. Like, this is what people do when they read. They they remember passages. They like it. But I often think of the, I hear the critique about, oh, you shouldn't cherry pick. And I heard that a lot in church, right? Pastors love to critique other pastors for cherry picking right. verses. Right. But that's the name of the game. I mean, the lectionary in a mainline church is cherry picking, right? Right. Um, right. You know, you, you look at ceremonies for funerals, you look at ceremonies for weddings. You're going to pick particular verses and you want to make sure you pick the right ones for this occasion. And um, it seems to me that that's a part of whatever we think of as the informed way of reading the Bible. But uh, does that mean we're all just coming with different understandings of what it means to be informed when we read? Huh, it does actually. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I used to be a great memorizer of scripture. I was really good, so I could do the cherry picking well. Right. Yeah, for my cause. Um, you know, I, it's funny because I've wrestled with this issue, um, especially because I tend to teach, I have taught at institutions that are faith-related. So <laughs> I'm at Greensboro College, which is non-Methodist related, and I'm currently an adjunct at University of Portland, which is Jesuit. And so I don't know, I think it might be a little bit of kind of a CYA for me, you know? I resonate with the view of Jesus and Luke. Like, <laughs> that's my guy. If I'm going to go with a Jesus, that's the Jesus I want. Yeah. You know, and I'm very clear about that with students. I'm like, that's I know what I'm saying here, right? This is the one that works for me. This is the one that I think makes the most sense. And here's why, I, you know, I see it talking about justice. I see it doing these yeah. kinds of things and addressing social issues, economic issues. That's what gets and kills is is standing for justice, right? So I think on some level it helps that I'm aware of my bias and I name it and let's just go from there. Um, but but I don't often get to say to people, I don't often say, I never say to students, you know, I don't need the Bible to say anything in particular. I've never just said that to anyone in a yeah. classroom because the, because then that gets confusing and they don't they don't trust me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I engage the Bible because other people do. And so I want to engage it in a way that raises awareness about what's there problematically as well as what's there in a good kind of a way, in yeah. a useful way today. So uh, part of the, one of the thoughts that came to mind is thinking about your questions and what you've been saying is, so then where did I get my ethics? Like, hmm. where, if it's not from the Bible or from some sort of Christian foundation, where do I get my ethics? And I think on some level that's what philosophers and theologians have been arguing about for <laughs> centuries, right? Is it inherent? Do I have an inherent, you know, is it just humankind has embedded out of the womb sense of connection and, and you know, community and what the, I don't know, I, I kind of tend to think so, but. <laughs> well, as you, I, I think your book gives a great 
place to have that conversation in, ex in an extended way. So you can say the things that were they a soundbite on the news, you'd probably get blasted for, but in the context of a conversation amongst friends in a community, Right. They make sense and you can really grow from there. What do you hope that readers leave with as they come away from your book? I, I suppose many things, but honestly, the most important thing is for people to actually read some of these stories and think about them for themselves. I and mean, I feel like I'm kind of saying the same thing over and over in a sense on that one. I, I think it depends on who the person is, maybe. As I mentioned, I think in the intro or at some point in the book, I just, that relief of having, of saying on the first day of class, I'm not here to tell you what you should believe about these stories or what the Bible is. I'm here to invite you to think about it for yourselves. And just watching this, oh, good, really, you know, ah, relief roll over people in, in relation to reading the Bible or what the Bible is, that, for me, is worth it. If that's what you get is the permission to think for yourself, that is fine. If you, you know, there are people, we might say politically, uh, on the left who have friends who are very conservative. I, what I would love for them to take away from the book is um, a little bit of an understanding of what's going on for their friends on the right so that they have and a little bit and some information on how to engage them. Well, Jennifer Bird, it's been great talking with you. Thank you. Likewise. That was Dr. Jennifer Grace Bird. She's the author of Permission Granted, Take the Bible into Your Own Hands, published by Westminster John Knox Press. I'm your host, Richard Newton. On behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Ponsuwan, thanks for being here. Till next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the magazine SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. Like us on Facebook at SowingTheSeed, and we're on Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Thanks for listening. <laughs>